Which please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you, the hundreds of you across the country and in different places of the world that join us online every Sunday. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Also want to welcome our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho. And I want to thank you again for that generous check you gave us to reaching the children of Thailand for Christ. Uh, thank you very, very much. And First Baptist Church in Kalispell, Montana, and the hangar in Mary. Marion, Montana. What a great time uh, Kimberly and I and the family had with you. And then Pastor Jay, we drive by car, but then Pastor Jay comes the next week uh, by motorcycle. And so that's what he comes and spent uh, five days with their, uh, the First Baptist Church of Kalispell with their praise team, um, uh, working with them and, and mentoring and training and just had a fabulous time. Rhiannon, who is their worship leader, has just cut uh, a new CD out of Nashville. And we're going to be having that here available in a couple of weeks. And so she and Pastor Jay had a big concert there when Kimberly and I were there. And then the following week uh, with, with Jay when the following week and then Rhiannon just by herself uh, the week that uh, Kimberly and I were there. So we welcome you as you join us in our study of God's Word as well. If you'd like to use a mobile device, you'll see how to access that uh, behind me there or there in your paper outline in your program. You'll see how to do that or behind me on the screen. Our series from the Gospel of John is called Upside Down, How Jesus Reframes Everything. And today we come to John 17, and the theme of this chapter is unity. Now, Jesus has preached a sermon in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. These are the last hours of his life. He's going to be crucified in just a few hours. So those things that he shares now are most on his heart because he's about to die on the cross. And so he finishes this four-chapter sermon, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, with a one-chapter prayer. He prays for himself. He prays for his followers. He prays for people that would come to Christ uh, through his followers, which means us. He prays for us uh, here in John chapter 17. And so the upshot of, of this chapter is that the unity of the church matters a ton. The thing that was on Jesus' heart just before he went to the cross was that his church would be unified. The thing he desired the most was that we be unified. That was what it was on his heart. That's what his prayer was uh, before he went to the cross. Now he knew that Satan is going to attack our unity. Uh, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus knew he was going to go back to heaven. He was going to leave us in the world, in hostile territory. And so he prays for our protection, particularly that we would be as unified as the Trinity. That is, that's a high standard. As unified as the Trinity is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as unified as they are, that's what he prayed would be the example and the challenge uh, for the unity of the church that he left behind. He says in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And one of Satan's uh, major goals, his major uh, attack lines, is the unity of the church. One of his main goals is to attack our unity. Why is that? Because he knows that when we are unified, we are powerful. And when we are not unified, we are powerless or ineffective, or we are not as effective as we could be the more unified that we are. When we are unified, we support Lithuania being reached for Christ. We reach children in Thailand. 
We reach the people of the city of Pomona and the Inland Valley. When we are unified, we plant churches or keep churches open in the Pacific Northwest. When we are unified, God can use us to accomplish great things to change our world for Christ. But when we lose our unity, we lose our power, and we lose our effectiveness. My good friend Tom Mercer, pastor of the High Desert Church up in Victorville, I've heard him say on several occasions that he has seen God bless all kinds of churches, big churches, large churches, uh, rural churches, urban churches, suburban churches, uh, charismatic churches, liturgical churches, traditional churches, contemporary churches. He has seen God bless all kinds of churches. The one kind of church he's never seen God bless is a disunified church. A disunified church is the only church that God won't or can't bless. Uh, he blesses all other kinds of churches if we are unified. Um, another of my friends was Benjamin Franklin uh, from years ago. Uh, actually, at the 1111 service, they will think he's an old friend of mine. But anyway, I love this quote by Benjamin Franklin in, in, in which it was just before the American Revolution and they were about to separate from England, which was an act of treason, punishable by death. And he said this famous line to his colleagues there in the Continental Congress. He said, gentlemen, we must hang together or we will most assuredly hang separately. I love that. We better hang together or we're going to hang separately. That is, if we don't stay together one by one, we're going to be captured by the British and hung for treason. But if we hang together, we're going to produce this awesome nation that will dominate the world in the 2016 Olympics. That's what they had on their mind at that, uh, or it had to get that little nationalistic line in there. I'm sorry about that. At any rate, that, that if we hang together, we'll do great things. But if we don't hang together, we are going to hang separately. And boy, the same thing is true in our world today, isn't it? What we face in our country, in our world, we better hang together or we will most assuredly hang separately. Uh, Kimberly and I, as I said, we were driving for the last 3,000 miles together in, in the car. And, uh, and you just wonder, you know, what does an exciting couple like us do for 3,000 miles? And so what we got is this, um, this set of the great courses, which are these great college courses taught, the decisive battles of world history. 18 hours, 36 half-hour lectures on the 36 battles of world history that were the most decisive. We know how to have a whooping good time. I'm telling you, woo, do we know how to have fun. And so this is what happens when a history geek marries a history major. This is what you get. Monday night, we're driving by the lights of Las Vegas. Did we pull off? No, that would pull us away from our tapes in our car on our history tapes, you know. And man, you know, it's just so awesome how God helps you find the right person. I was praying for a woman that would listen to these with me. And, uh, and, and Kimberly and I yesterday just had our 33rd anniversary, 33 years. Um, uh, a third of a century, or I know you math people say that's not for four more months. Okay, so four months, we'll celebrate our third of a century uh, one. But anyway, we've been listening to all these battles. And we kind of made it a study as to how can you tell which army is going to win in a decisive battle. And we've come up with three principles, and there's probably more that we will uh, come up with. But which army tends to win in these decisive battles that changed world history? Okay, here are the three principles we've come up with so far. Number one, the army that embraces change usually defeats the army that resists change. That is, the army that takes on new weaponry, new technology, new military strategy, 
usually defeats the army that resists change. And the same thing is true with spiritual armies. The, the church that embraces change, I'm not talking in any way watering down God's word. I'm talking about new strategies to reach a new generation of people, a, a new culture. The spiritual army that embraces change rather than resists it usually wins the battle as opposed to the one that resists change. The second principle we came up with is the army led by humble leadership, leadership that is willing to listen to others, willing to take in new input. That army usually defeats the army led by arrogant leadership that refuses to listen to anybody else and just kind of it's my way or the highway. And then thirdly, to our point right here, is that the army, the more unified army, usually defeats the less unified army. Unified armies usually defeat disunified armies. And to our point, the more unified we are as a spiritual army, the more effective we are, the more powerful we are in changing our world for Christ. Let me give you an example of that. In the bulletin, in the program, the last couple of weeks while I was gone, Pastor Peter Torrey, our executive pastor, uh, put in there um, a challenge that many of you had challenged us within the church to do this, uh, like Rebecca Genzik and others had kind of uh, brought this to our attention. And so um, uh, Peter put that in the bulletin, a challenge for you to contact your senator, your state senator from California on Senate Bill 1146, which we believed would destroy higher Christian education in the state of California. And, and, and the unified response to that has gotten a result. I just read in the LA Times a couple of days ago that because of your strong opposition, because of unified opposition of the body of Christ to this bill across the state of California, they rescinded it two days ago and pulled back on it and amended it. Now, there were two tremendous leaders, First John, Second John, two Johns, uh, and friends of our church that were connected with this. The first on the right is John Wallace, uh, president of Azusa Pacific, very strong in the leadership to organize and orchestrate the op- opposition to this. And he has preached at our church just two or three years ago. John Wallace uh, preached here. On the left is Dr. John Jackson, president of William Jessup University. And he was part of our church family. He and his family were part of our church in the mid to late 90s. He's one of my best friends, and uh, he was actually mentioned in the LA Times article a couple of days ago. And he and I have been on the phone about this uh, before it got pulled back and then after it got pulled back, and he said, boy, it is just amazing what God did. But here's what he warned us. He said, it's not over yet, and you're not surprised by that, are you? Uh, Keep praying. Uh, We're going to maybe call you to action once again. He said, Glenn, praise God. This is a wonderful victory, but it's not over yet, and we've got to stay vigilant and we've got to continue to pray. But here's the thing. The more unified we are, the more we can stand up against these kind of things. The less unified we are, the weaker we are in the face of this kind of opposition. Now, what does it mean to be one? What does it mean to be unified? It doesn't mean we never have a disagreement. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean we all think alike on every issue. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that we love each other, cooperate, and work together. That's what it means. Our unity is a witness to unbelievers. Jesus said in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Did you know you were mentioned in the Bible? There you are. Uh, He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The most powerful witness there is, is the more different we are, and yet the more unified we are, in spite of those differences, the greater and more powerful our witnesses to the world that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And we have a remarkably diverse church. I've given you the statistics, ethnically, racially, what, what, you know, like in the upper 4% of churches in the nation. Um, uh, socioeconomically, we're diverse. Uh, age, I'll illustrate that in just a minute, how age-wise we're extremely uh, diverse as a church, almost as much as you possibly can be. Well, the more different we are, and yet the more unified we are in spite of our differences, Jesus says, the more powerful our witness to a watching world, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity is a billboard for God's love. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, why does it matter so much? Because God loved us, so we ought to be able to love each other. God forgave us so much, and so we ought to be able to forgive each other. God gets along with us, and that is not easy all the time. God gets along with us, so we ought to be, if God can get along with us, as a mess that we are, we ought to be able to get along with each other. Um, I love this quote here. It's not the water outside the boat that makes a boat sink. It's the water inside the boat. It's not the water outside the boat that makes a boat sink. It's the water inside the boat. How many of you are nervous about what's coming through the gates in the year once ahead in our country and in our world? Here it is. Whatever comes through those gates, we have a better chance of surviving if we work together. We gotta hang together. We gotta stick together. What Satan uses to destroy the unity of a church? There are many different things, but let me just give you six of them. Uh, Number one, false teaching. Uh, Paul writes in Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned, keep away from them. Churches that water down the truth, that water down God's word, they, they, their energy drains away over time. I've lived long enough that I can see this. I don't have to just read about it in history. You can see it in our lifetime. Those Christian schools that drift from their commitment to God's word drain energy and spiritual power over time. Those Christian organizations that drift in their commitment to God's word and to truth lose spiritual energy, lose power over time. And those churches that water down or compromise the truth of God's word drain spiritual power over time. Next page of your study outline. Uh, John Piper writes, we want to be arm in arm with millions of faithful followers of God's word. Truth does divide. Now, let me make it very clear. We're not talking about unity at any cost. I'm not saying let's lower the bar so low that all of us can be unified around it. Absolutely not. We're not talking about unity at any cost. Truth does divide, but it also unites. And it is the uniting power of truth that we delight in the most. Paul writes to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we as a church are going to unite around sound biblical doctrine. Does anybody want to say amen to that? 
Now, here's the other side of the coin. Here's another tactic of Satan, either to get us to water down the truth or to major on minors. Another one of his strategies is majoring on minors, which is the other side of the same coin, where we make major issues where the Bible is unclear, we make those into minor issues where the Bible is unclear, we make those, we major on those things and make those into major issues. And we say it's my way or the highway. Uh, Paul writes in Romans, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, now, Paul here is talking about matters of the faith. He's not talking about sports teams or anything superficial like that. Uh, he, he here is, is talking about the matters of the Christian faith. And he says that within the Christian faith, there are certain what he calls disputable matters. Things Christians disagree on because the Bible is unclear on those things. And Paul says, learn to live with it. Learn to get along in spite of it. Because there are more important fish to fry. There are bigger fish to fry. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Paul calls certain arguments about the faith. He's not talking sports teams here, okay? He's, he, he's talking, he's not talking, you know, he, he's talking here about matters of the Christian faith. Some arguments within the Christian faith are foolish and stupid, because you know that they produce quarrels. He says there are things that are foolish and stupid uh, to argue about. Now, I have a theory as to why we as Christians love to argue about those secondary things. And you know what it is? It's avoidance of something harder to do. We, we, it's so much easier to argue with a fellow Christian about secondary matters and to debate things on social media and to argue about things endlessly. It is so much easier. And we feel like we're doing God's work. We feel like we're doing something important, okay, for the cause. When in actuality, all we are doing is avoiding the main thing he called us to do, which is to build loving bridges with the people of our oikos to lead them to Christ so they will join us in heaven. And, and do you ever find this in your life? That as soon as you've got something, a chore you don't want to do, you can find all kinds of other things to do before you do that thing. I mean, Kimberly and I, if I'm on the phone with her on a Friday, and she senses I'm just kind of going on and on a little bit, she goes, you're using me to avoid your sermon, aren't you? And I'll say, yeah, I'm busted, I'm busted, you're right. And so we hang up, and I get back to the thing I, I ought to be doing. I wish I'd been able to capture this. I saw this commercial during the Olympics, and I just saw it once, and I just saw it fleetingly. I'd love to capture it, but it, it's something about, I think, like financial planning or something we don't like to, the, the th kind of thing we put off, like retirement planning or end of life or, or coming up with a will or, or something like that. And by the way, within our church, we have a guy, Ron Blomberg, who is just, he is just all in with us to help us prepare for those things that we tend to put off. And so in the commercial, the couple is like cleaning a closet. They're cleaning their basement. They're cleaning the garage. They're finding all these little things to do because they want to avoid the thing that is the more important thing to do. And that's what we do. We love to argue about these secondary items because it is far easier to debate these things, you know, uh, it's far easier to debate the exact order of the events of the return of Christ. It is far easier to determine so, which pastor so-and-so is a heretic and which one is not, and uh, supralapsarianism. And, and it's all easier to debate those things with, with fellow Christians uh, than it is to get about the hard work 
of reaching our world for Christ. D.L. Moody, a great evangelist of the 1800s, kind of the Billy Graham of the 1800s. D.L. Moody uh, was accosted by a woman one time who was ripping into him because she didn't like his style of evangelism. And so he listened patiently. He says, you know what? That's legitimate. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I can learn. What's your style of evangelism? What is your approach to reaching people for Christ? She goes, I don't have one. And D.O. Moody said, well, I like my strategy of reaching people for Christ better than your non-strategy for reaching people for Christ. And, and so many times we use these other things to argue about because we're trying to avoid the harder thing, which is the main thing. God's goal for your life is to go to heaven and to take your oikos, your 8 to 15, and your sphere of influence to take them with you uh, there. Now, um, one of my heroes is a pastor, Dane Ocker, pastor in Colton. He's been pastoring in, in the heart of Colton for 30 years at First Baptist Church Colton, now called Center Point, because they're in the center of Colton, Center Point Church in Colton for the last 30 years. And he is painstakingly reaching person by person for Christ, built a mega church, which the definition of that is 2,000 people in average attendance. He has built a mega church in the heart of, of Colton, California, and he has done it with almost zero resources. His congregation just doesn't have many resources, and so he does it on a million-dollar budget. That's a fifth or a sixth of our budget. On a million-dollar budget, he has built a mega church in Colton. Lousy facilities, lousy facilities uh, there on their property. Lousy location. And anybody that thinks you can't build a church if you don't have the right location and the right facilities and, and the right financial resources, just I want them to look at my friend Dane. And he has done it by majoring on the majors and, and his congregation avoiding uh, minor things that they can argue and, uh, and, and, and debate about. Um, he, he writes about this, and I just love um, um, what he, he says. He says, I have had people through the years leave our church because, and, and I got a kick out of his list of reasons why people have left his church. They've left his church because we use drums. Uh, they've left his church because we use too much humor. Uh, we used an overhead projector and a person left the church. The way we serve communion, that we have chairs instead of pews, that our chairs are uncomfortable. We've had people leave our church because it doesn't make them feel good. Uh, the fact that we allow men to wear hats in church. Some people have left this church uh, because of that. That we allow people to eat in the church sanctuary. That we are not dogmatically pre-tribulational that we don't use the King James Version of the Bible. On the other hand, there are many people who have stayed and learned to live with things they are not crazy about because they agree with the major doctrines of our church and they love our heart to reach the community. Now here's how their church handles uh, major and minor issues. You'll see it there in your study outline. He puts them into three categories. There's biblical absolutes, that is things like Jesus is the only way to heaven. Then there are personal convictions that people have, like being vegetarian or not being vegetarian. Uh, there are personal uh, preferences uh, that people have, such as, such as music. Now, our church, we tend to divide things into two categories based on a quote by Augustine, who was a pastor uh, 1,600 years ago, 400 A.D. He had this quote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So we have two categories, essentials and non-essentials. In essentials, that would be the same as Centerpoint Church's biblical absolutes, we must have unity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, and that would cover their personal convictions and personal preferences, we can have liberty. 
And in all things, the way this works is charity or love. Now, a third uh, tactic of Satan is unresolved conflict. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, John Corson, who is just a great Bible teacher, I love, instead of Eodia and Syntyche, he calls these women odious and soon touchy, is uh, who he calls them. Uh, instead of Eodia, Odi- uh, odious, and instead of Syntyche, soon touchy. Okay. Now, these are great women. These are awesome women. He says they're going to heaven. Their names are in the book of life. They're, they're, they're going to heaven. And he uses a very strong word. He says, they have contended with me by my side in the cause of the gospel. These are awesome women, but they weren't getting along with each other. And it was hindering the ability of the church of Philippi to reach their city for Christ. He says, hey, church, help these two women to get along because think how much more powerful you'll be if these two women uh, resolve their conflict, get along, and work in the same direction. Now, what are you going to do when somebody complains to you about our church or complains to you about another person within the church? Well, I love this quote by John Maxwell. He says, every person walks around with two buckets. One bucket contains water and the other gasoline. We continually come across small fires and we can pour water or gasoline on the fire. It is our choice. What are we going to pour on that? Okay, what are we going to pour? We're going to pour gasoline. We're going to pour water. Uh, fast, we, we had such a great time with this. Uh, well, it was a terrible thing, but we, we enjoyed it at the, um, uh, when we, after we had preached, Kimberly and I it spoke at the church at um, the hangar in Marion, Montana. And we went to this uh, lake house that the Todds have there where we were staying, this gorgeous Montana lake. And it stays light till 10 o'clock at night now, uh, this time of the year up there. And so we go and we sit on their front porch and there was a forest fire on the other side of the lake. And we sat there for an hour and a half watching a helicopter come into the lake, scoop up water, go over, drop it on the fire. Like 10 or 12 times just while we were sitting there. And sure enough, we wake up the next morning, and I'm sure there were brave firefighters on the ground that were fighting that fire as well. But we woke up the next morning, and that fire is completely out. Well, that's what we're called to do to take our helicopter and to scoop water and to go over the fire and to drop it. Now, what is water for dealing with conflict? You've heard me say this probably a dozen times. I believe it's more information. Just get more information. I have found that the vast majority of the time, if you'll just find out, if if the church does something you don't care for, just get more information. If somebody, a friend of yours at church or in your family does something or says something that upsets you, get more information. And I have found that when you get more information about that situation or that thing that person said or that thing that they did, 90% of the time it clears it right up. An additional 9% of the time when you get more information, you say, I still disagree with what they did, but I understand why they did it. And so 99% of the time, just getting more information will clear up conflict uh, within a church. Now, that leaves 1%. 1% of the time, I get more information on something, and I'm like, you know what? I disagree with what you did and why you did it. But you can handle one conflict at a time better than you can handle 100 conflicts at a time. And then it becomes more manageable if we'll just pour water on it, and the best way to pour water on it is to get more information.
And then number four is growing pains. This is fascinating. Acts chapter six, verse one. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, isn't this interesting? It was when the church was growing that they had new conflict. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked by the daily distribution of food. Now, the Hellenistic Jews uh, spoke uh, Greek. They were Greek. They probably spoke Greek. And I think they're representative of younger Christians uh, within a church family. And then the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrews, probably spoke Hebrew. I think they're representative of the older Christians uh, within a church family. And the Greeks were not getting their food. And when organizations grow, it presents challenges. Now, we as a church uh, have grown about 140 people per year, every year, slow and steady growth for the past 23 years. For the past 23 years, we've grown about 140 people each year, more than the previous year, in average attendance I'm talking about. In average attendance, we've grown about 140 people a year, year after year for the last 23 years. That means that our attendance has grown about 3,000 people in the last 23 years. And that presents a challenge. And as we grow, you can feel left behind. As we grow, you can feel left behind. But I want you to know that you are a huge part, even if you have that feeling, you are a huge part of what God is doing here. Just look what, what God is doing. Look what God has done because of you. Just look at how God has used you. Look at what God has done because of you. Babies are exciting. Babies are exciting, physical babies and spiritual babies. I'm telling you, that nursery just keeps growing and growing. They're always asking for more rooms, more rooms for the nursery. Pretty soon, they're going to be having the nursery in here, and we're going to have church in the nursery, okay, as it eventually happen. And I don't know what you young couples are doing to grow our church, but just keep doing it, okay? And I don't know, but just keep at it, because it's helping our church to grow. And physical babies are exciting, and spiritual babies are exciting. We're on track to have another 140 people get baptized this year. And so physical babies are exciting and, and spiritual babies are exciting, but it can lead to stressors sometimes. It's an exciting thing how diverse our church is with regard to age group. I told you a couple months ago that we did a study, and this is a, a broader study than just the average attendance, which is around 4,000, but of everybody that is either a member here or an attender here, or a regular or even a somewhat occasional attender here, they consider this their church home, and that number is about 7,000 people. And we found that that was evenly distributed between seven decades, about a thousand per decade for seven decades. So about a thousand people ages zero to 10, and about a thousand people ages 11 to 20, and about a thousand people in their 20s, about a thousand people in their 30s, thousand people in their 40s, thousand people in their 50s, and a thousand people 60 or older. And, and that is just a wonderful thing. Most churches specialize in one generation or another. They specialize with regard to certain age groups. But our church is not that church. We are that church that is very evenly uh, across the demographics and the age of our church. Uh, but here's the challenge, is that different groups can feel neglected or feel like the church is doing more for another age group than their age group. I have literally, in the last couple of years, probably had conversations with people from each age group Except the year zero to nine. I haven't had a conversation with a five-year-old, but, but with their parents I have. With their parents I have. I've had a conversation probably with people from each one of those decades that feels that their decade is being neglected in the church at the expense of more attention being given uh, disproportionately to the other decades. 
And, and in many cases, they're right. In many cases, I, I agree with them. And, and figure out better ways that we can, we can feed the Hellenistic Jews the same degree that we're feeding the Hebraic Jews. It's the same issue the church has had from the same, from the very beginning. It can happen across different departments of the church. Children's ministry feels like they're not getting enough of the financial resources compared to adult ministries or student ministries isn't getting as much as missions is. And, and each department of the church can feel that way. Different campuses, as we have different campuses, uh, can, can feel uh, that way as well. And so we just need to be careful to protect the unity, and the best way of putting water on that is to, is to gain more information. Now, what is your part in keeping Purpose Church close and unified? Number five and number six, you can read that on your own, because the pastor is back, and he's long-winded again. So here we go. Okay, the long-winded pastor is back. Uh, what can we do? Uh, how are you going to put on? Are you going to put on gas or are you going to put on water? Uh, Paul writes in Romans 14, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. Unity is worth fighting for. We're going to have conflicts at times. We're going to have disagreements. We're going to have hurt feelings at times. We're not going to see everything eye to eye. But we have got to work it out every time a conflict comes up for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of a lost world that's on its way to hell. We have got to work it out because there's bigger things at stake here and all God's family said, amen. If you'd like prayer for anything, our prayer room is open with the prayer team and the prayer partners. They would love to pray with and for you. If that would in any way be an encouragement, it's on the main floor here, to my left, to your right, right through that door. For our benediction, I want to pray over you the prayer that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago with you in mind. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are. I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way that you've loved me. And all God's family said, God bless you. Have a great day.